Thank you guys so much. All right, one thing uh, before I begin. A couple resources for you to, to be aware of if you want to do some additional reading uh, after, um, after we, we hear what we're going to talk about. The first one here, you've probably all heard of. Uh, it's a book called uh, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. So this is very much uh, aimed at just helping you work through this issue uh, personally, uh, working through difficult heartache, challenges, trials, and, and what is God's sovereignty in relation to all those things? In what way is God sovereign over the trials of life? So uh, really, really good. It's, it's worth your investment. It should be on every person's shelf. Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Uh, second resource, um, and, and this one is um, you know, a little more... Uh, uh, wrestling with some deeper theological things, but this one's by John Piper, and it's called Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose in the Glory of Christ. So, so the aim of this book is really uh, a book form of what I'm going to do here tonight and then <clears throat> um, next month. So I'm not actually going to finish tonight. I, I'm going to have to take uh, another time to do this. But this is really a, a biblical theological explanation of how do we understand the quote-unquote problem of evil, especially in relation to uh, the sovereignty of God. So this is a phenomenal book. It just walks through Bible texts that wrestle with this issue so, so good. It's a challenging read. It's not an easy read, but it is so worth your while. So that's Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose in the Glory of Christ. So if you just Amazoned Spectacular Sins, John Piper, it would come up. So this is really good. And then the last one, um, if you're a uh, glutton for punishment and you like being tortured, uh, there's this book here called Still Sovereign. I mean, you can see how thick this is. I mean, it takes like big muscles to, to you know, it takes all, everything I've got to hold this thing. It's so thick. Uh, but this is a really, really challenging theological work, and, and yet it's really going to delve into some uh, crucial issues. Um, so this is weighty, heavy stuff, but it's thorough and excellent, and this is sort of the top of the line. So this is Still Sovereign, and it's edited by a guy named Schreiner and Ware. Those are their last names, Shriner and Ware. So it talks about uh, all sorts of issues related to the sovereignty of God. Okay, so those are three issues, or uh, three books, uh, resources that would be uh, good for you. And, and I just want you to know that, that as we begin here tonight, um, I just want you to know that I really believe in, in what we're doing here tonight. And what we're doing is theology. We're doing theology. And the thing about theology is that it was never, ever intended to be some mere, abstract, theoretical ideas disconnected from real life. Right? That's, that's never what theology is. We have this concept of theology that it's, you know, it's impractical, it doesn't really help us in the, in the trenches of life. And, and yet, what we have to understand is that the essence of theology is that it is designed to do holistic life transformation. That's what theology is designed to do. Theology is for life. Theology is for living. You see, there's nothing theoretical about it. And again, uh, I, you've heard me say this before, I define theology as taking the most lofty, exalted thoughts about God and connecting them to the everyday issues in the trenches of life. We make an unnecessary bifurcation. Well, there's theology and then there's the practical stuff. That is an unbiblical bifurcation. It's that we take the most lofty, exalted thoughts about God and we work to connect them to the everyday issues in the trenches 
of life. And so my job as a pastor, at least one of my jobs as a pastor, is to have things of eternal weight pressed into your souls. In other words, that you would see the connection between what we see on the page of the Bible and how that connects and changes our lives. So again, uh, another way to put it is part of what it means for me to disciple you is that to help you understand all of life's deepest dilemmas in light of what the triune God is doing in the world in and through Christ. Does that make sense? That's, that's what we're doing here. So, um, and that's why we do these theology seminars every single month. And so you have to understand that the secret, the secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but rather to push ourselves deeper than ever into who God is. Does that that make sense? The secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who God is. And tonight, the the topic we're going to talk about is one of literally earth-shattering significance because we, we touch upon one of the most sensitive nerves of our existence, namely the existence of sin and suffering and Satan and evil. And, 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 and uh, how and why God allows it and controls it and does not prevent all of it. I mean, this is, this is not a small thing. And, and we desperately, desperately need to talk about this. And, and uh, audience participation here, why do we need to talk about this issue? What would you say? Just, just raise your hand or whatever, just blurt it out. I mean, why do we need to talk about this issue of sin and evil in the world and how it relates to God's sovereign control? Why do we need to talk about this? What would you say? Oh, is that a hand? Go ahead, James. To know if God's trustworthy or not. To know if God's trustworthy or not. Absolutely. I think of all the issues, this is one issue that's going to affect every person at some point in their life. Even if you can go for a few decades, at some point it's going to sneak up on you. You're going to feel it. You're going to feel it deeply. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no one is untouched by evil. Right? We all either experience it, maybe not always directly, other, other people you know, more directly, but, but either way, this is going to touch our lives, and we have to understand this. Yeah, really good. Hey, why else? Why do we need to talk about this? Because it's self-evident that other people are talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's, maybe this is not what you meant, but there's even a, an apologetic issue, right? I mean, there's all sorts of alternative explanations for this and, and people's thoughts and, and, and we need, you know, about, about how to understand this. And so, um, you know, other people are talking about it and it's in the Bible, so we need to talk about it. Yeah, and, and again, you don't need to tell me that, I don't, you don't need me to tell you that we live in a world that is just filled with horrifying things. Just filled with horrifying things. I mean, the pages of history drip with blood and, and echo with war and, and reek of death and, and are filled with the nightmares of countless unspeakable things that are committed with incredible barbarity, right? You don't need me to tell you that. I mean, even just the 20th century, with all of its technological progress and, and human innovation, the 20th century was the bloodiest in human history. World War I, 15 million souls killed. Under Stalin's regime, 20 million people killed. World War II, 55 million people killed. People's Republic of China under General Mao, 40 million people killed. And there's a list. I have this list in this, this book at home that lists all the genocides and everything that happened. And every single one of them were in the 20th century. The 20th century was the bloodiest in human history. And I don't see things changing much in this one. 
do you? And so we're not going to kid ourselves into thinking that, oh, okay, well, in the year 2000, the human heart drastically changed and, and man turned over this new leaf and, and, and the, the magical utopia that we all want is just, it's just magically around the corner. It's just going to happen, right? I mean, no one believes this. We know that's not going to happen because of what the New Testament says where human history is headed. And so the world in which we live is literally a global house of horrors. And so... The thing is, is that those, for those who believe in the goodness and the kindness and the love and the power and the sovereignty of God, this seems to pose a problem, right? The fact that we believe in God and yet the world in which we live is filled with these kinds of things, it seems to cause a problem. It seems to cause a tension. And... And, and yet you notice, it, it may not be on your notes there, but, but you notice that the title for the seminar has the word problem in quotation marks. And I didn't do that to be obnoxious or cavalier or, or calloused. Um, I, I, just, I, just, I do that because at the end of the day, the Bible just doesn't see this as a problem. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. Sin is a problem. Sin is the deepest dilemma in the universe. God hates sin with righteous fury and, and uh, rage, and sin will be justly punished in hell forever. And, and sin is so serious that on his own, man cannot do anything to remedy his situation. So sin is an infinitely weighty and massive problem. I'm not, I don't mean that. I just mean that this is a problem of evil because... Although we feel like God's sovereignty and goodness is called into question by the existence of sin and evil, the Bible just doesn't see this as a problem. This is simply not the case. So my point is, the Bible has an answer. The Bible has a solution for the problem of evil. And it is glorious, and it is hope-giving, and it is triumphant, and it is one of the most, if not the deepest foundation of our joy. And so what we have to do is we have to be willing to open our Bibles and to plunge ourselves into the deepest, darkest places in the Bible. And we have to be willing to believe what God says about this issue of sin and evil. So that's, that's where we're, we're after here. And, and, and I'll just let you know, in the spirit of full disclosure, I just want you to know that my answer, that the solution, the Bible's solution to the problem of evil will be what we know as the sovereignty of God. That's, you can go home now. The, there's, there's the answer. It's the sovereignty of God. And yet you know, you feel in your bones that requires more explanation, right? It, and it does, and, and we'll, we'll give that. But that's where we're going. In fact, I'm going to even say that the sovereign love of God is the Bible's deepest explanation for why there is sin and evil in the world. Now, what I, what I mean by that, we're, we're going to see, but the sovereign love of God is the Bible's deepest explanation for why sin and evil is in the world. And, and I just want you to know, this is, this is a lot of prefacing here, and I feel like I have to do this, but I just want you to know that, that what you're going to hear tonight and next month, uh, it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to hear, and, and it's not going to be easy to teach. In fact, um, maybe this is overstating it. Maybe this won't be true, but I feel like that very likely what you're going to hear will be some of the greatest intellectual, spiritual, and theological challenges of your entire life. Uh, that's really what we're, what we're in for. 
Um, so you and I are, are, are both in real need of God's grace tonight. And I just want you to know, I, I have prayed much for you before uh, doing the seminar. I've prayed for you that instead of being skeptical and, and cynical and, and defensive, that, that God would instead use His Word to open your eyes to see that God's sovereignty over evil is nothing to be threatened by, but rather something to rejoice in. That instead of stiff-arming the, the sovereignty of God over sin and evil, you would instead embrace the satisfying implications for your life. And because you have to understand, to withstand the 21st century with, with all of its terrors, you have to understand, you need a gloriously big God. That, that's what you need. It's not enough to have some soft, non-theological cushion of warmth. Christian feel-good platitudes are not enough to deal with the world in which we live. You see, to deal with the world in which we live, you need a God who's not just generally or kind of sovereign, but rather you need a God who governs everything that comes to pass. Put it another way, you need a God who will not apologize for his absolute, undisputed dominion over everything. And thankfully, that's the only God there is. So here's, here's where we're going. My aim, my aim tonight is to demonstrate from Scripture, uh, aim tonight and next month, <laughs> is to demonstrate from Scripture that the deepest, most ultimate explanation for the existence of sin and evil in the world, get this now, is the sovereign love of God. I'll say that again. My aim is to demonstrate from the Bible that the deepest, most ultimate explanation for the existence of sin and evil in the world is the sovereign love of God. Not merely the sovereignty of God alone, not the love of God alone, but the sovereign love of God is the deepest explanation from the Bible for the existence of sin and evil in the world. And so I'm going to argue, I'm going to argue that in some mystery that we will probably never fully comprehend in this life that God lovingly, lovingly designed a plan of salvation that in some mystery included the existence of sin and evil and sinners who need a Savior. That's what I'm going to argue. I'm saying that's a mystery. I'm not saying, oh, that makes total sense and we just get that. No, that's really difficult to understand. But, uh, but that, I believe that is what the scriptures say. That God lovingly, in eternity past, lovingly designed a plan that in some mystery that we'll just never probably get to the bottom of in this life, a plan that included sin and evil and sinners who would need a Savior. And I'm going to argue that the reason God did that was so that in the end, Get this now, Jesus Christ would be put on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. Now, I don't want you to panic. Um, again, this is all preface and, and intro. I feel like I have to do this. This is so weighty. You know, everything you've believed about the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the responsibility of, of the full responsibility of mankind for, for, for what they do, all of that is still true. Nothing changes. Everything you've believed about those things are still absolutely true. But I'm just arguing that in some mystery, incomprehensible to human logic, though it may be, that God ordained that sin and evil would exist in the world in such a way so that in the end, when all of human history is over, 
that Jesus Christ would be put on display as a treasure for our everlasting enjoyment forever. I'm not saying that's easy to understand. I'm just saying I believe that's what the text says. So that's my, that's my aim to prove that. And I have seven parts to prove this. So I think I got it wrong on your notes. I think I have six parts, so I made a, I made a, a, a boo-boo there. Apologies. But I have seven parts to prove this, and this is, this is where we're going. Part one, uh, I want to pose the ultimate questions about sovereignty and evil. I just want to ask the questions. What are the kinds of questions we need to ask about this issue? Part two, uh, I want to present the solution to the problem of evil. In other words, on the front end, uh, rather than make you wait till the end, you know, like some sort of, uh, you know, mystery novel, uh, I'm actually going to put the, you know, I'm going to spoil the ending and tell you where we're going at the beginning and, and everything that we'll do uh, after that will prove that. But that's part two. I want to present the solution to you. Uh, part three, uh, I want to um, uh, present the meaning of the sovereignty of God. In other words, I just want to define what the sovereignty of God means. We're going to take some time to wrestle with what that term actually means. Part four, I want to portray the biblical evidence of the sovereignty of God. Um, in other words, I just want to walk through the entirety of the Bible and show you um, in, in a funnel-like fashion everything over which the Bible says God is sovereign. So we'll look at the Bible. Uh, part five, I want to probe the tension. I want to talk about the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So we need to wrestle with that issue. How does, how does uh, man's choice come into play with an issue like this? And then uh, part six, uh, again, this is not for you to memorize. You don't have to write this down. You just, just want you to know our, our roadmap. Uh, part six, I want to prove that sin and evil serve the sovereign plan of God. That's a, that's a real whopper there. And then part seven, I want to propose answers to common objections. Okay, so I'm going to anticipate objections that are going to be raised. And I want to answer those. And then uh, both tonight and next month, I'm going to take questions from you. And you can ask anything you want with regard to this issue. Okay, does that kind of make sense where we're going? I mean, I know that's a lot already. I mean, this is on the front end. This is heavy stuff, but here's where we're going. Okay, so let's begin with part one. Part one, which is I want to pose the ultimate questions about sovereignty and evil. I want to pose the ultimate questions about sovereignty and evil. And, and I want to begin uh, by asking really, really difficult and challenging, but necessary questions that we have to ask uh, that before we're done, they're going to be answered in some way, shape, or form. For instance, here's one of the questions. Is God in absolute sovereign control over sin, suffering, Satan, and evil? Is he in absolute control over those things? If, if the answer is no, that's a completely different seminar. We're anticipating that the answer is yes. But that leads to other questions. And here's some of the questions we need to get to the bottom of. Okay, if that's true, that God is sovereign over sin and evil, follow me now. In what sense is he sovereign over those things? In what sense is he sovereign over those things? What is God's exact relationship to those things? For instance, does God only know about those things beforehand? Or does God just passively let or permit or allow those things to happen? Or did God actually predestine and design in some mystery that sin and evil would exist? Right? Those, those are some questions. 
And follow up to that, if God did predestine and design that sin and evil would exist in the world, then, then how do we reconcile that with perfections of God that don't seem compatible with that, like God's holiness and righteousness and goodness and love. If that's true, Jared, that, that God ordained in some mystery that sin and evil would exist, how does that square with his attributes like holiness and righteousness and justice and goodness and kindness and love? How does this work? Here's another one. If God actually did, as you say, predestine that sin and evil would exist, from what motive would God do that? I mean, why would this be the plan? Were there not other alternative plans better than that one? Plans that didn't include sin and evil and suffering and Satan? And then a final question is, how do we understand the sovereignty of God versus human responsibility? Some people call that free will. We'll talk about that. And we'll talk about if the term free will is an actual biblical thing. But how do we understand those two things uh, together. And, and if you've done any reading on this issue, how many of you have done any reading or exploration or you've watched sermons or anything on the problem of evil? Anyone have any experience kind of reading stuff like this? Okay, a few of you. And, and um, inevitably, you know, you've all heard something. But typically, uh, theologians and philosophers, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll try to explain or resolve the problem of evil with, with the following syllogism. A syllogism is just if then then if and then so and you this will sound familiar to you it kind of goes like this if god is all powerful he is thus able to prevent sin and evil okay so there's an if statement there's another one if god is all good he of course wants to prevent sin and evil but the problem is evil exists Okay, so what do we do with that? Well, then we're left with the following conclusions. Things, things like this. Either A, God is not all-powerful and is unable to prevent sin and evil. Or B, God is not all-good and is unwilling to prevent sin and evil. Or C, God does not exist. So have you ever heard that kind of syllogism presented before? And I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And here's why. It gives the impression of being logical. It it seems to have an airtight logic about it, but the problem is it doesn't actually use the logic of the Bible, which is what we call theology. In other words, it makes too many assumptions, loaded assumptions about God's power and goodness and what he will and will not do with his power and goodness. In other words, we assume that because God is all powerful and because he is all good, and that's true, he is, then that means that he is thus obligated to prevent all sin and evil. And yet, my question is, is that what the Bible actually says? Does the Bible actually say that God's power and goodness requires him to prevent all sin and evil? I mean, is that what the Bible actually says? My question is, and this is going to be kind of hairy, what if God's power and goodness actually meant designing a plan in which sin and evil would exist without violating man's responsibility or accountability 
without violating his holiness or righteousness, because all of those things are still true. So we're walking on the knife edge of mystery here. But, but what, if, what if that is what God did with his power and goodness? What I'm saying is, there has to be, and there is, another alternative way to resolving the tension between God and the existence of sin and evil. And, and some people... Um, some people try to solve the problem of evil by saying things like this. There, there's three kind of alternatives that people will say, and, and they're well-intentioned, and, and they're, they're okay. Some of them are okay, but people are just trying to make sense out of things. So I'm not making fun of anyone for these explanations that people try to give. But, but here's a couple of alternatives that people give to try to solve the problem. People will say, when, when something bad happens, evil happens, well, God knew that was going to happen. And then they leave it there. And my question is, yeah, that's true, but does that help things? Does that actually solve anything at all? To, to say that God, God, well, God knew that was going to happen. Okay. And I don't think that solves anything. In fact, I think that only creates more problems. Because to be sure, God did absolutely infallibly know that that thing was going to happen because he knows everything perfectly from all eternity, right? He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. But you can feel in your bones that that answer is not sufficient. Why? Because it portrays God as a passive bystander who merely knows and watches and, and uh, watches evil happen and then afterwards makes the best of it and turns it for good. And you might think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing initially except for the fact that the Bible indicates that God does so much more than merely know beforehand that something is going to happen. Does that make sense? Alternative number two. Something evil happens, people will say, well, God God allowed that to happen. God permitted that thing to happen. And, and to be sure, to be sure, there is a level where God does allow and permit evil to take place. But once again, once again, the Bible indicates that God does so much more than passively allow things to happen and then simply try to make the best out of the mess that people make. The Bible indicates that God does so much more than that. And then alternative number three, people will say, well, man's free will, man's free choice, or Satan's free will, Satan's free choice, that is the ultimate explanation for why sin and evil exist. God doesn't have anything to do with that. And, and I get why people say this. And th- there is a level, there is a sense, there is one sense where that statement is true. And it all depends on what you mean by free will, which we'll, we'll talk about that. But, but I get why people say this. They try to lay the blame at sinful man and Satan as a way to demonstrate that God is not to blame, that God is holy and God is righteous. And that's exactly right. That is true. God is holy. God is righteous. He is, he is not an evildoer, right? Um, and, and, and so we should fight for the righteousness and holiness of God. And yet there are three problems with the, with the free will explanation. There are three problems with the free will explanation. Number one, 
the free will of sinners and Satan, depending on how you define free will, is not actually in the Bible. The free will of sinners and Satan, depending on how you define free will, is not a concept that's in the Bible. I know that sounds crazy, but, but that, that's, that's true. Number two, to say that sinners and Satan are the ultimate explanation, even beyond God, for, for why there is sin and evil in the world, implies something really, really dangerous, if not even heretical. Namely, that there is something outside of God that he is either unwilling or unable to control, namely the supposed free will of Satan or of sinful human beings. And are we really willing to say that? Are we really willing to go there to say that that there is something outside of God, beyond God, that that he's handcuffed in one sense? He, He can't. He just has to wait until Satan or a human being makes a decision and then he jumps in and then turns it for good and makes it work out for his purposes. I mean, is that, re- I mean, is that even what the Bible says? And I'm going to argue that's, that's not actually what the Bible says. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't intervene. Okay, I'm not saying he doesn't turn things for good. I'm not saying, I'm just saying that the free will, whatever that means, of, of human beings or of evil angelic beings, that that is not the ultimate final explanation. So, um, if, if those explanations are inadequate, and I believe they are, then that means that there has to be a, a better way to understand this. And again, in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you exactly what that is. So that brings us to part two. Part two, I, I want to present the solution for the problem of evil. I want to present the solution for the problem of evil. Uh, and let me ask you this. So, so again, audience participation. So I gave you those three explanations. Okay, well, God knew that it was going to happen. God allowed it to happen. The free will of man or of Satan, that's the reason why this happened. Are, are there any others that you can think of that, that you've heard? What, what else? Are there any other things that I missed? What, what have you heard? If there's not anything, that's okay. We'll keep going. But I just I want to make sure that you guys are, are tracking any other thing that you guys have heard? Is, is that, let, me, let me get a show of hands. Have you at least heard or thought of those solutions that I named as a possible solution? All right, so that's not unfamiliar, right? Okay, well, here's what I believe is the ultimate biblical explanation and solution for the problem of evil. You ready? Um, here's why sin and evil and suffering and Satan Exist. I believe this solves the problem. Here we go. Without minimizing the full responsibility of human beings in any way, without minimizing human accountability in any way, I believe that the final answer for the problem of evil lies in the infinite, unfathomable depths of the love of God. I believe that's the answer. Without minimizing human responsibility, because that's all still true, um, the final answer for the problem of evil lies in the unfathomable depths of God. I believe that the love of God is the deepest explanation for why there is sin and evil in the world. And, and, and again, I'm not just expecting you to take that as a fact. I want to prove this from the Bible, and that's all coming. 
And, and I want to nuance that just a little bit. Uh, what I want to say is the sovereign, this is very key here, the sovereign love of God is the deepest biblical solution for the problem of evil. Not the sovereignty of God by itself, not the love of God by itself, but the sovereign love of God fused and mixed together, inseparable together. I believe that that is the solution. In other words, let's put it this way. I believe that in eternity past, God had a loving and sovereign plan that included even the existence of sin and sinners uh, sin and evil and sinners who would need a Savior. Or, I'm going to put it this way. I believe the sovereign love of God, and this I think is the most important statement in the whole thing, the sovereign love of God ordained that sin and evil would exist to display the supremacy of His Son for our everlasting satisfaction forever. I believe that is the biblical explanation. I'll say that again. I believe that the sovereign love of God ordained that sin and evil would exist to, in the end, display the supremacy of the Son for our everlasting satisfaction forever. That's, that's I believe, is the deepest answer. Now, to get there, we have a long road ahead of us. Right? I have a lot to prove, don't I? And that's exactly where we're going to go now. So that brings me to part three. Okay, so, so does that make sense? At least conceptually what, what I'm going, I'm not saying you have to agree with that at this point. I just wanted to, does, does that make sense where we're going? I'm going to argue that the sovereign love of God ordained that sin and evil would exist to display the supremacy of His Son for our everlasting satisfaction forever. So I'm going to argue. I believe that's what the Bible, give, the answer the Bible gives for the existence of sin and evil in the world. Okay, so here's what we've got to do. The path to get there, the first step in the path to prove that that's true is we have to define the sovereignty of God. We have to define that. Because if I'm going to say the sovereign love of God uh, uh, ordained all things, including the existence of sin and evil, we have to define what the sovereignty of God is. And I believe this is an easy thing to prove from the Bible. But let me ask you, um, I know this is kind of a weighty thing to just kind of throw out there, uh, but what is the sovereignty of God? Or at least aspects of the sovereignty of God. Like, like how do you personally define it? Or what definitions have you heard that have been helpful to you? What would you say? Theological dialogue discussion. What, what, what would you say here? What is the sovereignty of God? Control. Good. Yeah, absolutely. At the heart of it, there, there is some aspect where God is in control, right? Very good. What else? Ordained and controlled. So ordained. Okay, very good. That's excellent. Ordained and control. Controlling. Controls. Present tense, right? Very good. Now, what else? Other aspects. Yeah. Sovereignty means no one higher. No one higher. Absolutely. No one tells God what to do. He answers to no one. There is no one that he has to be like, well, is this okay? Can I do this? I mean, no. I mean, there's no one who tells God what to do. I mean, he, he calls the shots, right? This is his plan. This is his universe. He's got jurisdiction over the entire universe. He is the one who is in charge. Excellent. Excellent. Anything else? 
evil angelic being. Angelic. Yeah. Good. Yeah, really good. Yeah. And, and no one would disagree with that. I mean, if you're actually reading the Bible and to believe the Bible, no one would disagree with any of it. That, that's excellent. Um, and so here's, here's my definition of the sovereignty of God. I've got, I've got a shorter one, and then I've got a longer one. So I'll give you the shorter version first. Okay, this is bite-sized. For me, it's bite-sized. Here, here's my definition of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is His infinite inexhaustible power to accomplish everything he predestined before the foundation of the world. That, I believe, is the sovereignty of God. I'll say it again. It's his infinite, inexhaustible power to accomplish everything that he predestined before the foundation of the world. So you see various aspects of that. You've got his infinite, inexhaustible power, right? So he is unlimited in that. And then you have this aspect where he accomplishes everything that he predestined. So we see that not only God in eternity past planned something, but also in real time, in our actual lives, moment by moment, God is in control. I'll say more about this in a little bit, but, but God is not sort of far off and distant watching with binoculars going, you know, it's like, well, I'm just, I'm just kind of watching this thing happen. No, God is in our lives And then obviously there's an aspect where if God predestined what would take place, clearly he knows all things, right? So so crammed into that definition are all sorts of uh, uh, attributes of God. What's missing, what you don't actually see, is, is God's love. We tend to make a separation between God's love and God's sovereignty and view God's sovereignty as sort of this kind of cold, calculated thing, blueprints and architecture plans, and there, that's the plan. And, and, and really... It's, it's God's, also His infinite, inexhaustible love merged and mixed inseparably with His sovereignty that planned and, and ordained and designed everything that would take place in human history. So there's the short version. The long version is this. Don't even bother writing this down. This, is, this, is, this, I, this might even be one sentence for all I know. Here, here, here's here's the, long, the long version. God's sovereignty means that In eternity past, God ordained, predestined, and designed every moment of every event that would ever take place, including in some mystery, sin and evil. And it means that He currently guides, governs, and controls every detail of what he designed, including, in some mystery, sin and evil, for the full and eternal display of the supremacy of Christ for our everlasting joy forever. That was one sentence. So that, that is my definition of the sovereignty of God. I'll read it again um, to, to feel this. God's sovereignty means that in eternity past, God ordained and predestined and designed every moment of every event that would ever take place, including, in some mystery, sin and evil. And it means that He cur- currently, in real time, guides, governs, and controls every detail of what He designed, including, in some mystery, 
sin, and evil. Why? For the full and eternal display of the supremacy of Christ for our everlasting enjoyment forever. I believe that is the sovereignty of God. Or, it's His infinite, inexhaustible power to accomplish everything He predestined before the world began. And I know that's a lot. I know that's, that, that's a lot to take in. And, but I want you to notice, uh, I used lots of terms there. Notice that I used the terms ordained, predestined, designed, and I noticed, notice I used them all in past tense. And I use those terms to describe God's actions in eternity past. Because I really believe that to understand the sovereignty of God, you have to understand uh, what God did in the past and what God is doing here in real time. And so when I use the terms uh, ordained and um, uh, predestined and designed, I'm using those terms uh, interchangeably, and I'm describing God's actions in eternity past. And so, in other words, to fully understand the sovereignty of God, we have to remember, we have to remember that God is not on some mad, scramble, willy-nilly, fourth quarter, you know, Hail Mary to accomplish His plan. God did not write out the plan of salvation five minutes before creation on the back of a napkin. Oh, uh, okay, there. I mean, that's not what God did. Um, No, everything, get this now, this is very important, everything that God does in real time is what He planned and predestined to do before the foundation of the world. Biblical proof. Isaiah chapter 46. I have no idea if it's in your notes. But Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, so if you want to take a peek at that, uh, this is where I get this understanding of, of what God did in eternity past. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. So it's really interesting, the, the context in which this verse appears, if you, if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, is that chapters 40 through 49, God is basically unfolding for the people of Israel His absolute supremacy and sovereignty over everything. Through the prophet Isaiah, God is telling the people of Israel, um, look, I just want you to know that you've, you've blown it. You've blown it. Destruction is coming to you, and nothing's going to stop it. This is going to be an absolute train wreck, and nothing is going to stop it. Okay, well, uh, what do we do? God says, essentially, summarizing nine chapters, says, well, I'll tell you what. Um, uh, uh, I... He, he, he comforts his people. and In fact, what he actually does is that chapter 40 in particular, he comforts a people in the midst of an exile that hadn't even happened yet. That's what Isaiah chapter 40, you know that big chapter on the, on the supremacy and majesty and beauty of God, you know, all that stuff? That is all written to comfort a people 120 years in the future in the midst of a Babylonian exile that hadn't even happened yet. I mean, that's what these chapters are doing. And in the midst of that, listen to what God says about His sovereignty. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. He says, remember the former things from long ago. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Okay, well, that's really interesting. 
God declares his exclusivity and supremacy. So the question is, okay, what is it about God that makes him so different and special from everybody else? What what makes him so incomparable to everybody and everything else? Answer, verse 10. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my Purpose shall be established, and I shall accomplish all my good pleasure. That verse is unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Do do you hear what God is saying about himself? He says that he declares, that he declared the end from the beginning. I know I'm putting you on the spot here. What did he just say? I declare the end from the beginning. Meaning what? What did he just say that he did? Defines time. Defines time? Absolutely. It has to be included in what he means. What else? I declare the end from the beginning. Precisely. That's exactly what he means. I declared that. The end, so in eternity past, I declared and decided and determined what the ending would be. I wrote the ending before, you know, before anything began. And then, and then, what else did he say? He said, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose shall be established, and I shall accomplish all my good pleasure. Meaning what? Meaning, before time, God determined that everything that he planned, he would accomplish. Do do, do you see that in the text? That's what he's saying. So everything is planned. Everything is predetermined. Everything is predestined. There is not one single detail that is accidental or left to chance. There is not one rebellious molecule in the entire universe that functions independently outside of what God did in eternity past. Namely, declare the end from the beginning in ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose shall be established and I shall accomplish all my good pleasure. He does it. And notice, notice very carefully that, that it doesn't say, well, I, I know what's going to happen and I'm going to allow it. Does the text say that? It doesn't say that. I declared it. And guess what? Everything that I planned, I will do it. That is the sovereignty of God. Calvin uh, takes a real risk. He takes a real risk, and he says something very provocative that, that, that is going to be very shocking to hear. He says, Accordingly, it cannot be denied that before creating man, God foresaw what the, uh, to what end he would come. God foresaw it because he had so ordained it from his counsel. Do, do you see what he's saying? Of course, he's, his point is, of course God foresaw everything that was going to happen. He did so because he is the one who ordained it. He goes on. 
No one should think it strange if I say that God not only foresaw the fall of the first man and with it the ruin of all the, of his posterity, but that he also willed it. For just as it is part of his wisdom that he foresees all future events, so it is part of his power that he rules and governs all things by his hand. I have no hesitation in saying that God's will is the necessity, or what he means is the final explanation of all things, and that what God has ordained and willed must necessarily come to pass, just as everything which he has foreseen will surely happen. He's saying exactly, I'm not saying anything that people in history have not already said. I am parroting what they are saying. Of course God knows, but it's not enough to say that He knows all things. We have to take it a step further and say what the Bible says. Passages like Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, of course God knows, but He knows because He ordained it to happen. Here's another text. Psalm 139, verse 16. Psalm 139, verse 16. This is very interesting. Does anyone remember Psalm 139? Do you remember what's going on there? How many of you are familiar with Psalm 139? No no condemnation if you don't. Uh, What's David going through? So David wrote it. And and you get this sense, it's really clear, that, that there's some pretty gnarly things going on in his life, Right? And so his life, there's, there's enemies and, and there's all sorts of things going on. And, and listen to what he says in verse 16. Listen very carefully. He says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Here it is. And in your book were written all the days which were ordained for me when not one of them had taken place. That's what David just said. In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when there was not one of them yet. See, David understood that in eternity past, God wrote a book of his life, including the chapters filled with suffering and pain and difficulty. And the book was written uh, epilogue, conclusion, index, and, and subject index, and everything, everything was written in eternity past, ordained for him. So, so that's, that's uh, one aspect of his sovereignty. That there's God's actions in eternity past, God ordained and predestined and designed. But you notice also, in my definition, uh, that I use other terms like guiding, and governing, and controlling. And I use all of those terms interchangeably as well. And, and all of those actions describe God's act, all those terms describe God's actions in the present. So, so it's not enough to say that, okay, well God, well, God created a plan, and then He sort of set it in motion, and He's just kind of off, you know, doing His own thing over behind Pluto, and, you know, He's not really, you know, I mean, that, that's not, not it. It's like that song, it's a terrible song. I remember it in junior high. Um, you might remember Bette Midler, and she sang this song. Uh, any Bette Midler fans out there? After, after tonight, you won't be a Bette Midler fan. So she wrote this song called, uh, God is Watching Us from a Distance. Okay, here's some of the lyrics. 
From a distance, you look like my friend. She's talking to like another human being. From a distance, you look like my friend, even though we are at war. From a distance, I cannot comprehend what all this fighting is for. From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land, and it is the hope of hopes, it is the love of loves, it is the heart of every man. God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us all from a distance. That is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. Because what she's essentially saying is, God is, I don't know what he's doing, but he's out there somewhere. He's watching us from a distance, and so our only hope is what's in here. That's our hope. Well, thankfully, that's not what the Bible says. That's not true. That's not true. So we have to understand that the God, the sovereignty of God means that God is, get this now, God is actively and personally and intimately involved with every single detail that He Himself planned and predestined. Okay, that, that we have to understand. And I don't think this is difficult to prove at all. In fact, Ephesians 1.11. Ephesians 1.11. This is an incredible text. So either it's in your notes or in your Bibles. Take a look at that. Ephesians 1.11. And this is incredible stuff here. And again, keep, keep in mind where I'm, where I'm going here. I'm going to talk about God's actions in real time, in present, in our lives, in actual time. And that, and, that, and that God planned all things, yes, but He also controls all things that He planned. Okay, so here's what Paul says. Ephesians 1.11, he says, "...among whom, in whom also we were made a possession..." Having been predestined, he's talking about people being predestined, having been predestined according to the purpose of the one who literally is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have been predestined according to the purpose of the one who is working all things according to the purpose of his will. Now, the context is what? Well, what can you tell me about the context of Ephesians 1? Like, what's happening here? Do you know? This is, this is an unbelievable chapter. It's incredible. Well, what is Paul doing in Ephesians chapter 1? Do you remember? He's unfolding what? And I'm putting you on the spot here. What's God talking about? Or what is Paul talking about? Talking about the blessings we have in Christ. And the blessings we have in Christ, absolutely. And what he proceeds to do is unfold the entirety of the plan of salvation uh, and focusing on each person of the Trinity and their particular role in the plan of salvation. And kind of at the end of this thing, he, he indicates that, that everything is unfolding according to the sovereign plan of God. But I want you to notice very carefully what, what Paul said. He said that we have been predestined according to the purpose of His will, uh, according to, uh, uh, having been predestined according to His will, who is working all things according to the counsel of His will. Did you hear that? God is working. The Greek text, it's, it's present tense. He is working all things according to the counsel of His will. Did you also notice? God is working all things, not some things, not most things, all things 
according to the purpose of his will. And do you know what it's referring to when it says God's will? When he talks about God's will, he's talking about what God talked about in Isaiah 46. He means what God planned and predestined before the ages began. That is God's will. And by the way, just want you to know, next week we're going to talk about how to understand that phrase, the will of God. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But that's what Paul means here. What God's will is what God planned and predestined before the ages began. Notice, God is working all things according to the counsel of His will. Can you tell what Paul's saying? He's saying that God is weaving and orchestrating and directing every event in human history, including every moment of your life, to match precisely the blueprints that he designed before the ages began. That's what he just said in Ephesians 1.11. It's incredible. It's incredible. Here's another text. Um, how time eludes us here. Well, no, I, I will leave it there. Just, just mark down Daniel 4, 34 and 35. You can, you can peek at that um, later. But it essentially says the same thing, that God does His will according to the host of heaven, in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, that God, that there's no sense that God merely, merely passively allows things to happen and then merely makes the best of it. No, it's that God does what He pleases. He does His will in the host of heaven. Of heaven. Okay, so that's the sovereignty of God, and that's weighty and big and exhausting, but that brings us to part four. Part four, and this is going to move really fast, so uh, fasten your seatbelts. This is really going to haul here. Um, and part four is I want to portray the biblical evidence of the sovereignty of God. And, and by the way, we're, we're going to do questions and, and answers in a, in a little bit, so I want to I hear from you. But part four is I want to portray the biblical evidence of the sovereignty of God over everything. So in other words, I think it's necessary for us to display that, that God is sovereign over every realm of existence. Okay, Because if we're going to prove that the sovereign love of God ordained that sin and evil would exist, the, the, the path to that destination is we have to prove that God is really actually sovereign over, over everything. And, and here's, here's the thing. Let, let me ask you, uh, what kinds of things do you see in the Bible over which God is sovereign? As you, as you think about verses you've read, and, and what kinds of things do you see in the Bible that says God is sovereign over? What kinds of things have you seen? In the Bible, what does it say? Big things, small things. What do you see? Nature. Nature. Absolutely, I've got tons of text on that, right? But even down to Psalm 104, He causes grass to grow for the cattle. Why does grass grow? Because God makes it happen. It's interesting. Okay, what else? What other kinds of things do you see in the Bible over which God is sovereign? The whole history of Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not hard to find text on that, right? Dude, what else? The intentions of rulers. The intentions of rulers. Yeah, absolutely. Proverbs 21.1, right? The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he darn well pleases. Yep. What else? Yeah, that what humanity was designed to do, the design of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep, even the plans that people make, right? The the plans 
belong to a man, the plans of a heart belong to a man, but Yahweh is the one who directs his steps. Yikes. Yikes. Wow. Okay, what else? What other things do you see? Yeah, you know, yeah, you, you, in a good way, you're, you're, you're ahead of me and, and stealing the thunder there. I'm, no, no, I'm glad you did, because you know what? What you just referenced, that is, that issue right there, is the ultimate explanation. That's the thing that solves everything. Um, just to tip the hand here, Acts 2.22 and Acts 4, uh, Acts 2.22 through 23 and Acts 4.27 through 28. Those are the, the deepest, most crucial texts to understand the sovereignty of God over evil. Excellent. So we're going to get there next month. Um, what else? Anything else you see in the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, I love uh, what Paul says to the philosophers at the Areopagus in uh, Acts 17. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples, yada, yada, yada. Uh, since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every yep. nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Acts 17, 24 through 26, or something like that, right? And yada, yada, yada is not actually in the text, so. <laughs> no, but, but you're exactly right, right? I mean, I mean the, re, the, the, the nations, any nation that has ever existed, where they live and how long they are in existence is determined by God. Okay, so th- this is going to be rapid fire here, and we're going we're gonna to actually end with this. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off in the time we've got. But here is a, a rapid fire. There are actually ten realms that we can see from the Bible over which God is sovereign. Ten realms. Okay, so we'll start, and we'll do this funnel-like. We'll go big picture, and we'll go move our way down to really small things, like minutia kind of things, like rolling dice and things like that. Okay, realm number one. God is sovereign over the entirety of the universe. God is sovereign over the entirety of the universe. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Period. (laughs) There it is. God does whatever He pleases. God is sovereign over the entire universe. We saw Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, right? Here's another one. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who became His counselor? Or who has given to Him that He should give back to Him? Here it is. Because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him is the glory forever. Amen. So that last phrase there, from him and through him and to him are all things. That is, that is one of the clearest texts to show that God is in absolute sovereign control over the entirety of the universe. Because from him are all things. That means there is not one thing that takes place in the universe that is outside of God's control. Through Him are all things. That means that nothing happens in the world without His direct guidance and supervision. 
Okay? And then to God are all things. Every single thing that transpires in history will in some way, shape, or form wind up bringing God glory. And then Ephesians 1.11, Daniel 4, uh, 35 and 36. Okay, so, so God is sovereign over the entire universe as a whole. Big picture. Let's move the funnel down just a little bit. The second realm over which God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all creation. God is sovereign over all creation. Here's some things over which he's sovereign. I may not have time to give you all the texts, but uh, planets, stars, and space. Planets, stars, and space. Here's, here's a couple. Um, Job 9, 7. God commands the sun not to shine, and he sets a seal upon the stars. Pretty sweet. Job 26, 7. God stretches out the north over empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. So, so, I mean, these guys, these, these guys who lived about the time of Abraham, they understood that the earth hung on nothing, that it floated in space. How did they know that? How did they know that? It's incredible. Uh, Job 38, 31 through 33. Job, uh, God is in control over uh, the constellations. He's in control of over all those. Isaiah 40, 26. God is sovereign over the stars. He calls them all by name. Not one of the stars is missing. Do you know how many stars exist just in our galaxy? They almost cannot be numbered. It turns out that there are 500 billion galaxies, so they think, in the entirety of the universe. 500 billion galaxies in each one of those galaxies has billions and billions and billions and trillions of stars. And God calls all of them by name and not one of them is missing. God is sovereign over oceans and seas and rivers. Psalm 89, 9-12. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its, ra- wa- when its waves rise, you still them. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, those are mountains, they shout at the joy of your name. Psalm 104, 10 through 13. He, this is God the subject, He sends forth springs in the valleys. Why are there springs? Because God put them there. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He, that is God, God waters the mountains from His upper chambers, and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of His works. Psalm 135, 5 and 6. For I know that great is Yahweh, and our God is above all gods. Everything which He pleases, He does in the earth and in seas and in all deeps. That means storms, tidal waves, monsoons, and the crashing of the Titanic are all under His sovereign control. God is sovereign over trees and grass and vegetation. Um, this, is, this is incredible. Uh, Psalm 104 Uh, 14 through 17, he, that is God, causes grass to grow for the cattle. This is Psalm 104. And vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. Get this. The trees of Yahweh drink their fill. The cedars of Lebanon, which he, that is God, planted where the birds build their nests and the stork in whose home is the fir trees. God planted the trees. You could say that. God planted them. Well, no, the Arboretum Society did that. Actually, actually, the, the psalmist has no problem in saying God did that. God did that. Through human agency, sure. 
But God did that. God is sovereign over weather, like rain and snow and clouds and lightning and wind. Um, One of my least favorite verses in all the Bible, this sounds blasphemous, but I I hate snow and I hate cold. Psalm 147, verse 15 through 17. He sends forth His command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like the wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth ice as fragments. Who can stand before His cold? People in Spokane, Washington especially feel that. So God really had it in for the Pacific Northwest. Um... Okay, boy, tough crowd. All right, all right, get this. All right, uh, uh, Psalm uh, 147. But I literally, I did think about that verse. I'd just be freezing and I'd look outside, just chilly, and it's like Psalm 147. Uh, Psalm 147, another place. God covers the heavens with clouds. He provides rain for the earth. Get this. He makes grass to grow on the mountains. God does that. Jeremiah 10, 12-13, It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He has stretched out the heavens. Do you see that? God, the, the, the language the, the prophets use is God stretched out the heavens. God, God made the, the fabric of space. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and He brings out the wind from His storehouses. Animals, birds, and wild beasts. Genesis 2.19, God brought the animals to the man. 2 Kings 2.23-24, remember that thing where Elisha is going up and those naughty kids say, go up you bald head, go up you bald head. This is every man, like bald man's like personal like revenge story here. Go up you bald head, go up you bald head. And this actually isn't funny, I shouldn't make a joke out of this, it's really tragic. When he looked behind him, he saw them and he cursed them in the name of the Lord and two female bears came out of the woods and, and, and killed, killed those kids. Unbelievable. Uh, I, I'm sorry for playing that off as funny. It's really tragic. Okay, Second uh, Kings 17. Second Kings 17 is that God sent lions into northern Israel. God sent lions. It says God sent them to kill people. Psalm 104, 24 through 30. How many are your works? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There's the sea, the great and the broad, swarms without number. He goes on to talk about the fish and the Leviathan and, and that he is the one who feeds them. And, and when God determines, it says when God, when God determines, that's when animals die. He determines when your pet died. Eww, ouch. Okay. And then Daniel 6, 22. God is the one who shut the mouths of the lions. Jonah 1, 17. God appointed a God, uh, uh, Dag Gadol, a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah 4.7, God appointed a worm to, to kill the branch that, that was growing over him. And, and tons and tons of texts. Here's my favorite. Uh, Matthew 10.29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the earth apart from your father. So the little bird perched on a branch in the Amazon jungle that no human being will ever see with their, with their own eyes. God is, is in sovereign control over that little bird. It's amazing. The third realm of God's existence. We're almost done here. God is sovereign over the nations. 
God is sovereign over the nations. So not only over the universe as a whole, not only over creation and all those things in creation, but, but then the third realm, God is sovereign over the nations. And, and I think the place to begin is Genesis 11, right, at the, the Tower of Babel. I mean, do you realize that, that nations, and this sounds crazy, but nations came into existence uh, as a consequence of sin. The, the nations came into existence as a judgment on sin. And I'm not saying nations are a bad thing. In fact, what you see is God's sovereign majesty where, where God, you know, at the Tower of Babel, you know, God changes things, nations are made. And yet, what do we see? We see in Revelation 5 that Christ dies for some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Nations in some mystery were God's plan the entire time. Unbelievable. That God is sovereign over nations. Job 12, 23 through 25. He makes nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nation, then leads them away. He deprives the intelligence, uh, deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people, and he makes them wander in pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. God appoints the downfall of entire nations. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Isaiah 40, verse 15 and 17. Behold, the nations are like nothing before him, like a drop from a bucket. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. All of the nations are like nothing before him, as less than nothing and meaningless. And then the text that Chris read. And he made from one man. Every nation to dwell on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, what nations exist and for how long they exist and their location and power and weakness or prominence or obscurity or, or wealth or poverty, in some mystery that we, we, we can't quite fathom, all of that is determined by God. <laughs> Last category, and then we'll, we'll take questions. Fourth realm, um, and, and again, just so you know, this, this is half of my material. The other half comes next month. So, you know, cliffhanger. But fourth realm, fourth realm over which God is sovereign. God is sovereign over kings and authorities and governments. God is sovereign over authorities and kings and governments. Psalm 16.10. Actually, no, Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh, he turns it wherever he wishes. Isn't that interesting? The public plans of politicians are under the sovereign control of God. Isaiah 40, 23 through 25. God is the one who brings dignitaries to nothing. And he makes the judges of the earth meaningless. They were scarcely planted. They were scarcely, uh, they were scarcely planted. They were scarce, they scarcely had taken root, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. Daniel 2.21 And he, that is God, changes times and seasons and he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Romans 13.1 let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, 
For there is no authority except by God, and the ones who exist have been appointed by God. Unbelievable. That he wrote that. Who was in power when he wrote that? Remember who was the emperor? Uh, at that time, uh, Domitian was a little later. It was Nero. Nero was, was ruling the empire at that time. And he could look at Nero and say, well, Nero thinks he's a pretty big deal. He's appointed by God. And then last text, Revelation 17, 16 through 17. This is really an interesting text. It describes 10 future kings who will join the Antichrist in his global rebellion, his global uh, uh, tyranny. And here's what it says about those 10 kings. This is, this is incredible. For God, literally, I think our English versions say, put it into their hearts. Literally, it's, it's the verb gave. For God gave into their hearts, into the hearts of these kings, to have one purpose. Uh, uh, to, oh yeah, no, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm translating here from the Greek. For, for God gave into their hearts to do one purpose and to have one will and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. So, Revelation is telling us when all the world is this giant one-world government and the Antichrist is ruling and he's got these ten kings and, and it's all this kind of nasty, ugly tyranny over all the planet, the, the, the Revelation tells us that when that happens, we will know that God is the one who put it into their hearts to join together and have this united coalition of evil. God did that. They did that on their own. Right? Uh, well, what they feel is on their own, but they willingly did that. They made that decision. That's true. They were, they were responsible. They made all the plans. They may, had all the meetings or will have all the meetings. They, they worked it all. They will work it all out. They will gather together. They'll do their thing. But what John tells us in Revelation, yeah, they think they're doing their worst. But what they don't understand is that they are playing right into the sovereign hands of God. Okay, well, let's leave it there. And then we'll cover the rest of the material next time. But inevitably, inevitably, you, you have, have questions. And, and where we're going um, is we're going to talk about the other remaining realms over which God is sovereign. And then we're going to actually solve the problem. And I'm going to try to prove that the sovereign love of God is the ultimate explanation for all of this. Okay, so hit me with your best shot. Nothing is, is off limits or too controversial. Uh, I, I see that. <laughs> no, it's good. Keep it going. Keep it going. Um, she was singing the song, hit me with your best shot. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, come on, hit me with your best shot. Okay. Uh, all right, so what, what, questions, what questions do you have about stuff? Again, I haven't given you my punchline. I haven't proven that yet. But inevitably, uh, it would be good to clear up some things if, if that's helpful for you. So what do you have for me in the last few minutes? Okay, so you said this morning our lives are to be blameless, elders, and, but by extension, everyone. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, Sometimes I slip up, but often I just walk into it with my eyes wide open. And uh, so I'm doing what God has asked me not to do, but I do it anyway. Yeah. Now, talk about the talk about the will of God, the, Good. the sovereignty of God. When I do what God has asked me not to do, and yet I do it as His child. In this case. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That, that's a great question. That's a great question. So he, he's asking about the, the will of God, and, and especially as it pertains to what God has commanded in, in his word. And then there's the things that we do that, that are sinful. And, and how is God kind of sovereign over all that? And, and, and I, think, I think, is that kind of yeah. where you're going? It's a great question. I think the answer is this. I think, uh, not I think, this is, I believe, what the, the Bible, the answer the Bible gives us is that when we think about the will of God, there, there's two senses, there's two ways of, of understanding the will of God. One sense of the will of God is the declared will of God. And the declared will of God, what, what He wants for your life, is here in the book. This is God's will. So what, how should we live? What should we be? What should we do? Right, right here. So that's the declared, that's the decreed will of God. Or, um, uh, no, sorry, that's the commanded will of God, the revealed will of God for your lives. There's another sense of God's will that is what we would call the decreed or hidden will of God. And, and that is the will of God whereby he, gover- where he ordained and governs everything that comes to pass. So let me give you a really hairy example here. 9-11. That still feels pretty fresh for me, even though I was in my 20s, and, and, but it's like, ooh, I remember that day. Was 9-11... The will of God. I'm not asking you to answer. Just think about it. Was 9-11 the will of God? And the answer is no and yes. No and yes. No, it was not His will in the sense that His word authoritatively and publicly declares those things to be absolutely heinous crime that, crimes that deserve eternal punishment in hell forever. That, that, that is not okay. That, that is evil. That is wicked. But yes, it was His will in the sense that in some mystery that does not minimize those terrorist responsibility in any way or their accountability in any way, in some mystery that human logic just can't seem to get to the bottom of, even that catastrophic event in some mystery, even that was ordained in eternity past. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying that that's, that's what the Bible says. And here's what, what makes that really crazy, is that we tend to think, well, if God ordained that, then that means in some mystery, or that, that must mean that, that you know, uh, you know, it was okay for them to do it, or there wasn't as evil, or, or God's not going to punish them for it. No, no, we have to uphold both. Human responsibility, full human responsibility for the decisions that we make, and on the other hand, which it doesn't seem to mix, but we have to do it, the, the sovereignty of God over every detail of life. We are fully responsible, fully 100% responsible for the actions that we commit, because we do them out of the overflow of who we are. And yet we just we have to understand at the same time, it's like, well, in some, in, in some way that I don't understand, God is sovereign over all of that. And, and all I know is, is that this is what he has commanded for me. And I am accountable and I am responsible to believe it and to obey it and to submit to it. That is his will for my life. And yet another aspect of his will is his sovereign will over all human history. So in answer to your question, when we blow it with sin, how should we respond to that? We need to repent and, and change by the grace of God, and not, none of that changes. None of that changes. And at the end of the day, and this is a really tricky question, 
it really tr- it takes you know a lot of finesse to kind of answer this. How do we understand our own sin in relation to God's sovereignty? I think we have to say things like this. Here, here's a script. God, I know that there's never an excuse or any permission at all for any evil that I do. I am responsible. I did that, and, and I deserve hell for that. And, and I guess if you had to comfort yourself with the sovereignty of God, you have to say, I know that in some mystery, even that event was ordained. And God, I don't understand that. I don't get how that works. I, I can't put that together in my mind. I just, I just trust you, even though I can't explain that mystery of my responsibility and your sovereignty. So my basic answer is, Tommy and everyone else, is you can't solve the mystery. All you can do is state what the mystery is. And it's that um, God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign in such a way um, so as to not... God is sovereign in such a way, but not in such a way so as to minimize the personal responsibility or accountability of any human being. And that's not easy. That, that's, that, I'd have to, I'll have to think about how to answer that better. But I don't know. Does that make sense? Absolutely not. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a mystery. We have, we, have to, we have to toe the line of mystery, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for opening with that one. Jeez. Give me, give me a softball. No, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, yeah, what else? What else do you have? Uh, I, want, I want to be helpful here. Um, I'm curious when he mentioned, like, emphasized a little bit more on, like, free will. Um, and, like, part of kind of asking for forgiveness is admitting to your own responsibility you have over your sin. Yes, absolutely. And how that is, like, what essentially is what causes punishment is our sin and what we have done. Even yes. though it is ordained by God, we have committed that sin totally and knowingly. Agreed, correct. Um, and we are fully aware of not, I would say, the extent of our evil, because in order to know that, I think we have to understand the extent of God's holiness. Mm, mm-hmm. I can't, I, one can't wrap my mind around that. Good, that's insightful, yeah. But I am curious, and this is probably a worn-out question, but I, my sister asks me this a lot, and it's like, how can you then, when you talk about free will and responsibility over your own sin, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do you say that to a, a six-month-old or someone who might be unable to cope with reality mm. and how can they then be deserving of punishment if they're to also at the same time take responsibility of something they really aren't able to oh yet. yeah 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 that's that's really good wow boy i never i didn't see that coming that that's a great question so if you didn't if you didn't if you didn't hear her question no it's good you know so is the gist of your question um how do we understand the responsibility of people who commit evil things uh, when they are maybe, you know, disabled in some way or they're little kids and they don't quite understand. They don't quite understand their own hearts. And um, yeah, that, that's is that kind of where you're going? That's a, that's a great question. And this my answer will not be satisfactory. 100%. But I think, you know, I think, you know, when you have kids, no matter regardless of their age. Um, well, I'll answer the question with Psalm 51, verse five, where David says, um, in sin, my mother conceived me, and, and, and then he goes on to say that, that from birth I was evil. From, from birth I, I was evil. So he understood, David understood in that great psalm about him repenting after he really blew it with Bathsheba and then killed her husband. Uh, what, what he meant was, I understand, God, that I was woven in the womb of my mother with fallen, sin-polluted materials. That I did not emerge from the womb a blank slate, or good, I emerged from the womb broken and sinful. 
and that when we see kids who don't really understand their heart and and even you know don't understand their own responsibility and what and what they're doing they don't have full comprehension of that in one sense it kind of doesn't matter because what they do regardless is still an overflow of their nature it's an overflow of, of who they are so regardless of their age um, I mean, you can tell moms, right, when when babies scream, when in, you know, when they cry, when it's just hunger cry, and when it's anger cry, right? We we see babies, even babies sin, um, and so you know, so in in that sense, nothing really changes because because people emerge out of the womb totally depraved. Um, that didn't quite answer. What what was the other part? What am I missing? No, no, that I mean. That makes sense to me, it's just but then you also think about how he, I think David said this, but how you knit me together in my mother's womb. Yeah. And then that verse, so then it's also like, so are we, if someone has a miscarriage, does that child, you know, are they deserving of punishment? Ah, I see. Okay, well, that, and that's a really good question. Okay, so what do, let's, let's talk about, you know, a child who dies. And, and it's like, well, well clearly they're, they're a sinner, Right, that that's true, and so if they, if they die or there's a miscarriage, like what do we do with that? And you know, I think I think what you there, there's not like one slam dunk verse that like settles the whole thing on that issue. But I don't think it's hard to do some some harmonizing of texts and to look at what all the Bible says um, about who God is and and who He and, and what He does to to know that in the end, although they don't deserve it. And that sounds crazy, and that sounds really harsh, but although they don't deserve it, I believe that it's clear enough that, that babies, when they die, they go to be with the Lord. But, but that even that is grace. Even that is grace. And so I think, you know, I think, I think that's, that's the issue. Yeah, it's good. I probably didn't scratch the total itch there, but that's, that's a great, great question. He did, yeah. He said, "I can't." So uh, her question was, "Didn't David say that he would see his his dying baby in, in heaven?" Here's what's really interesting about that. We'll get this next month. Um, so the baby that that she's referring to is the baby that she had with Bathsheba, the, the first the first child, and and the text actually goes on to say that that God inflicted the child and made the baby sick. That's what the text says. Yahweh inflicted, literally struck paga in the in the Hebrew. He struck the child, and the child died. It's like, what do we do with that? That's the mystery. That's the thing we just have to go, I don't understand all that. I can't explain all that. I just know that God is good. Everything I've believed about God's goodness is, is, is true, and His love is still true, and I don't understand the, the dimensions of all that. Um, but, uh, but, but what David says after the baby dies, he, his response is, um, uh, the baby can't come back to me, but I will go to him. And it's a little vague as to what he means, but exactly, but I think it's clear enough that he understands an afterlife. I believe that's clear enough in the text, that he understands that there, there is hope beyond the grave. His, his, his wording is veiled a little bit. He doesn't give a full explanation. Oh, okay, what I mean, guys, is, you know, he doesn't, you know, but I think he's clear enough that there is life after that and that, and that uh, it's not said and done for that baby. So that's, that's a good question. Yeah, what else? What else? Okay, that one. Uh, softball, please. This is, uh. Yeah, this is softball. Yeah. Okay. This is one of the uh, it's one of the most frequent things that people outside the faith want to talk about. Yeah. And this is something that we are having difficulty with, the paradox involved. With. Yeah. And so 
when somebody says who's not a believer or is a baby Christian, like how could a good God allow the uh, the Holocaust? Yeah, you know, either God's not in control or God's not good. What you were saying, earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, since this is such tough stuff, what is a legitimate answer there that that honors their question while realizing, you know, this is this is. Yeah, yeah. I think I think when someone's trying to put you on the spot, and maybe they're not trying to be nasty about it, but they're just like, help me with this. Help me understand this. And I think in those situations when people when people hit hit you with those things, I think you need to say, look, look. There's lots of things that we don't fully understand, you know, and, and there's lots of things that are still mysterious to us. But the Bible is clear that God has absolute sovereign control over every event in human history. That he doesn't merely just passively allow it to happen, that in some sense, he even wisely and lovingly and uh, 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 ordained that, that all events would take place in human history. And, and I think what, what you have to emphasize is, and yet what we have to understand is, is that God ordained that all things would, ex- would, it would happen, even the existence of sin and evil, for loving and wise and gracious purposes. I think that's the mystery. We, we didn't solve anything. We just stated the mystery. And I think, we, I think we just, because that's the answer that the Bible gives. God ordained that even sin and evil would exist for loving and wise and glorious purposes that I don't see how it's all going to work out now, but I know that in the end, in the end, um, you know, actually, we'll put it this way. I, I've used this analogy before. Have you ever seen those photo mosaics? It's like, it's like a, a picture, and it's made with little teeny photos, right? So the one I remember is like of Yoda, you know, and, and there's Yoda. You stand in the back, and it's Yoda, but when you come up close, it's made of little tiny pictures. All of human history is like that mosaic picture of Yoda or whatever. Um, and and the, the, the dark little pictures are, are the events filled with evil and sin and, and grotesque things. And the ones that are... are are bright, are the, are the joyful, happy, glorious things. And, and God ordained all of those things. And, and I, don't, I don't get them in, in real time. I don't understand their purpose in, in real time. But I do know that at the end of human history, when God hangs up the, the portrait of human history and we stand back, we will see this glorious portrayal of who God is. And that in the end... Because, of, because of, of his ordaining, even the existence of sin and evil, that we will see the full range of his perfections and, and attributes, both his wrath and severity against sin, and both his love and mercy towards sinners. And, and I think something like that is what we have to tell them. It's like, I, I don't get it all, but God is sovereign over all of it. And he ordained that it would exist for loving and glorious and, and sovereign purposes. And those purposes are that in the end, we would see more of who he is. And with all the qualifications of, look, mankind is still responsible. They still must endure wrath unless they repent and turn to Christ. None of that changes. I mean, we have to insert all the... That's, that's what makes this so tricky, everyone, because this isn't like... There's some, there's some theological things where they can be answered as you're passing each other in the hallway, right? Is Jesus Christ God? Yeah. Colossians 1.15 and uh, Colossians 2.9 and Titus 2.14. End of story. And, you know, it's like you could, you could talk about the deity of Christ in passing. This requires 
three hours at Starbucks sitting down, reasoning with people from the scriptures and, 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 and asserting all the necessary qualifications. So it's hard to have the elevator answer, but I believe that would be it. You said that was going to be a softball. But that was the one you had, that's, that's the one you've got to ask. That's, that's the right question to ask. Okay, well, let's, let's call it quits there. That, that, was, that was a lot. That was a lot of stuff. Um, I'll, I'll hang around for a few minutes. Please come bug me and, and tackle me with anything that you've got. Again, we're going to do this at the end of next month, part two. Apologies. I didn't mean to spring it on you that, that we wouldn't be able to finish it all tonight, but I just couldn't do the, the subject justice in, in one shot. So if there's anything that you're not going to be here for next month, uh, come talk to me, and I'll try to answer your question ahead of time. Okay, thank you for being here. Appreciate you guys. We'll, uh, we'll see you later, okay? You're dismissed. Eat, eat that food out there, too. It's all yours.